The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Take Cast. My name is Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. This is um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say it. This is my favorite episode of the show that we have done through so far, through about 45 episodes plus everything that we have on the Patreon. I think this was the most illuminating conversation that I've had with anyone so far. Had a great conversation with Matt, who is the director of football development at Sports Info Solutions, about his journey through football, about his time as a scout within the Saints and Browns organization. Really cool story to see how he got there as well, as well as talking about the work that they're doing at Sports Info Solutions to chart the games and, you know, figure out about you know, figure out this game that we all love and and who deserves the credit for what. Uh, Of course, we have an extended conversation on Patreon. If you like this podcast, there is more of it on the Patreon www.patreon.com slash takecast and if you don't want to support the show on Patreon you of course can always leave a rating and review on iTunes which is massively helpful it's uh, it's big for me and, and lets me know that you're out there and I would really appreciate it so after this uh, quick ad we're going to get right into the show Daily Roto is a mostly proud sponsor of the TakeCast, a mostly sports podcast. TakeCast listeners can save 10% at Daily Roto with the promo code Janis, J-A-N-I-S. If you are playing on DraftKings or FanDuel, Daily Roto will help you improve your daily fantasy results this fall and save time in the process with lineup optimizers, ownership projections, fantasy projections, premium content, and much more. They have all the good stuff that you want to help you make money at sports betting and daily fantasy. Their new lineup optimizer will let you build optimal GPP teams with stacks based on their projections faster than I can punt money off betting on Peter Uline. Sure, you can play the guys that I recommend each week, but shouldn't you also get advice from a proven daily fantasy winner like Drew Dinkmeyer? Yes, I do have better hair than Drew, but I also have his cell phone number, and that makes me a winner almost as much as it makes him a winner of the DraftKings Millionaire Maker. And it's not just fantasy. They have tools to bet on player props, golf matchups, and a customizable NFL game simulator for this fall. Save 10% with promo code Janice today. All right, hello everyone. Welcome back to the TakeCast. I'm Davis, of course, and I am joined by what I think is a pretty special guest, Matt Manicharian from Sports Info Solutions. He is the Director of Football Development at SIS, but, uh, you know, first of all, welcome to the show, but before we get into, you know, the nitty gritty, the heart of football analytics, I kind of just want to hear about your personal journey to the game of, uh, professional football, why football, why coaching, why scouting, you know, kind of, how did you end up at SIS? Tell me the, tell me the Matt Manicharian story. All right. Well, uh, first of all, thanks Davis for having me. I'm excited to, uh, be here with you. And a uh, fan of the show since I started listening when you had my buddy Keegan Abdu on. Um, man, my story goes back from being a kid growing up outside New York City who just fell in love with football at a young age, first on TV and then on the field. 
Um, and honestly, I fell in love with football because I was, a, I was a spoiled kid and school came easy to me. And football was the place where I had to scrap and figure it out. And I knew by the time I was in high school that I wanted to devote the rest of my life to football because football taught me the value of, of hard work and, and kind of... So first you, place you played I, football? I played throughout high school. Yeah, I didn't play in college. Um, I played wide receiver and free safety um, over at Rynek High School, go Black Hats. And um, I went to college. I wanted to play D3 ball, but I got into Duke on academics and my parents said, you're going to Duke. So I ended up, yeah, right. Um, I ended up going in that direction. But as soon as I graduated, I came back and I started coaching back at my alma mater. And uh, my, uh, my old head coach gave me uh, control of the secondary pretty quickly there. And uh, I coached a season there. Um, I was looking for other jobs, trying to find a way back into whatever networking I could. Um, and I actually got an internship with the New Orleans Saints through a friend of a friend of a friend of my father's was knew the father-in-law of the GM of the Saints. So it was just wow. connections through connections through. But I, I was reaching out everywhere. I was a big Malcolm Gladwell tipping point fan, kind of trying to use the power of loose ties. Um, and I got an internship. It was a six-week training camp internship. And really, it was me. Uh, I was turning 23, and there were four college kids. It was really a college job, setting up the field, uh, handing out Gatorades, checking the players in for meal, meals and stuff like that. Um, but, and there were even two high school kids that, that had the job with me. But once, once we finished all of our kind of daily tasks that we had to do, we were able to go into the scouting department and try to help out with whatever we could. So for me, um, it involved a lot of peeling of stickers, you know, the, the draft board stickers with the magnets. Yeah, uh, just peeling thousands and thousands of stickers and kind of being around and, and soaking it all in and learning how things work. And eventually, you know, you get a couple of tasks. And um, before I knew it, the six weeks was up and I was out of New Orleans and I was back coaching another season of high school football and uh, doing real estate day jobs in New York, which all pay a lot better than football jobs. Head, uh, head coach of the football team? Nope. I was, uh, I was, I, I went from being a volunteer assistant to uh, actually a member of the coaching staff. So I got paid my second year, but um, coached the wide receivers and the secondary um, even did a bunch of work with the, uh, the younger kids there who actually, after I left, they went on to go to the state championship game. Um, but um, just uh, kind of grinding it out. Um, very, very small, um, not, not big time football at all. But learning, you know, on the ground level, how you teach the real basic things, you know, footwork, and learning different schemes and, and what's going on. And I had the benefit of also being around the Saints. And then sure enough, I got invited to go back to the, the Saints training camp for an internship that second year. And when I got there, I walked into Mickey Loomis's office and I said, this year I'm not leaving. Um, and he laughed in my face. Um, but eventually I found my way in because uh, they say, you know, find a way to make, you know, make yourself unexpendable. Mm -hmm. And... I ended up doing that by figuring out that the crazy special teams coach, awesome guy, Greg McMahon, um, he wanted somebody to film the kicker's foot, the punter's foot during practice, every kick during practice. He wanted to film right on that foot. And I said, you know, I'll do it. I found a camera with the camera guys. They hooked me up with the oldest, you know, biggest 20 pound camera. And sure enough, every kick during practice, you know, the whole training camp preseason, I'd be running out onto the field right behind him, standing in the same spot with the big heavy camera. And he got used to that. And the biggest reason why I got to stick on, sure, I was, I mean, I went really hard. I worked, I worked my tail off. 
And um, I don't think I'm an idiot, you know, so I think they saw some really good things for me in the scouting department. But if it wasn't for that, I would have never gotten to stay on because it was that aspect where the coach said, we're, Matt can't leave. I need somebody to do this every day. Right. And that kept me in the building. So Mickey Loomis came to, came to my desk right around the beginning of the regular season. He said, um, good news, bad news. Bad news is you got to move out of the hotel. Good news is you got to find a place to stay because you're, uh, you're a New Orleans Saint. Um, so that was pretty cool. That's, that's how I got my start. So from that role, how, like, so with, how long did you stay with the Saints? Right. So um, I was with the Saints for three plus years. Um, and basically, um, I did a mix of being with the pro staff during the season. So a lot of advanced scouting, upcoming opponents, looking around the league on the NFL level, and college scouting in the offseason, draft prep, essentially. Yeah. Um, so I did that. And I was in house for uh, two plus years. The third year, um, I got put on the road. They put me back in my native Northeast and got me some experience scouting um, at different colleges, not, not a full region, but a partial region. And then it was the following off season. Uh, there was no room for advancement with the Saints at the time, but the Browns and Mike Lombardi, who now is uh, in the podcast game himself. Yeah, GM Street. Yeah, GM Street Mike Lombardi was uh, taking over the Browns uh, as the general manager there. And he came and hired me to be the Northeast Area Scout for the Browns. And I had a great experience in New Orleans. Uh, I love working for Mickey, Ryan Pace, Sean Payton. Um, but when I worked with, with Mike Lombardi, that was um, really a good fit for me in terms of I believed in his vision and the way we were trying to build things. I appreciated kind of the way that he approached everything. A little bit more new school, a little bit more of a, a, a thorough and rigorous approach as opposed to kind of the old school, what gets the job done approach, which is very much what I came from in New Orleans. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the rug got pulled out from under us six months into working for him, he was fired. And then, you know, things went in a whole different direction there, um, that I can, you know, tell stories about for days, but, uh, suffice it to say, please, feel free, please, please, please tell a story about, uh, about the GM change and the culture change in Cleveland. People, people will absolutely love that. I can guarantee whatever you're allowed to say, this is yeah. your time to get it off your chest. No, I, I, should, uh, I should try to be a little bit careful. Um, people that are close with me kind of know more of my full story there. But, um, no, like I said, I, I thought we were on a really good path. Um, I think kind of everybody knows at this point that both the scouting department and the analytics department, and at the time I was part of the scouting department, I really had nothing to do with any of the Browns analytics. Um, so, so in these jobs as a scout, both for the Saints and the Browns, this is, this is watching games, this is grinding tape, right? Like this is not uh, – this is not analyzing play efficiency. This is not comparing players, you know, via numeric analysis. It's all grinding the tape and taking notes off that, basically. Yeah, it's none of, it's, it's none of that. It's, it was nothing analytics at all. I was a, a scouting assistant in New Orleans. So it was a lot of administrative work, a lot of organizing, you know, other people's scouting assessments and learning from them. Um, but, yeah, it's turning on the tape. At the end of the day, everything's the tape. Um, that said, you know, as a scout or as a, especially as a decision maker, you've got to use all the tools available to you. So you'd see that happen to varying degrees. It's not like Mickey Loomis doesn't use this stuff at all. Um, he just has, I think a little bit of a different approach to using it than maybe some of the new school analytics type of people would use when they approach this kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, this is a scouting job. And, uh, especially, you know, once I got on the road as a college scout, um, 
I think of college scouting as being really like a 90% film job. There's yeah. other stuff. You want to see guys in person for sure, especially certain positions. A ton of what you do as an area scout is character evaluations. Yeah, talking uh, to coaches and stuff like that. Talking to coaches, yeah. Because um, anybody can watch the film, honestly. Um, and so and, for me, and, obviously, and trust me, as someone with a Twitter account, everyone does watch the film and yeah. thinks that they, uh, they know what's going on. Right. Um, it's, it's the blessing and the curse. Anybody can watch the game and, and uh, think that they're an expert. Um, and to an extent, they're not wrong. A lot of people have spent a lot of hours watching football. Um, and then at times, people are very wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, for sure. So as personally, I always try to look at things with as many sources as I can and try to really view things holistically. So numbers always, um, I think, played a role in my evaluations. You, know, you look for guys with tackles for loss and stuff like that. But historically, numbers aren't, are not very good. The numbers that have been available to scouts and these people that have been in these roles, we've learned not to trust them because, you know, yards is not a very valuable stat. Tackles is not a very valuable stat. And it's really easy to count those things. And it's really easy to see how meaningless they are to a football game. And um, so, people, so people have gone in other directions. That said, tendencies has been a part of football forever. So I don't care if you're a scout, if you're a coach, whatever you're doing, you better understand you know, situational football and how um, different teams act in different situations. And you, know, you want to call it tendency reports, like uh, my coaches that I worked for in high school football did or you want to call it analytics, like my current employer does, it's really the same thing to me. And uh, the problem is when people lose the, the thing that connects the two of them, the game on the field. Yeah. And uh, I think, I mean, I think that makes sense. I can say that, uh, you know, we've had players on this podcast, I've had coaches, and I've had a lot of analysts on the show, but this is the first time we've had, you know, a scout on the show. So something that I thought that would be interesting to talk about would be, you know, how is the analytics department viewed inside of the organization? Because I've only ever heard it discussed from the coach's perspective and you know from a player's perspective we had Brandon McCarthy on the show the pitcher um, he actually just retired but was you know a brave a Yankee and he talked about how the analytics department would uh, would bring them information it would basically just be in a, a booklet right like they would bring a booklet of tendencies and be like you know if you you're really successful when you do this less successful when you do this but but from a scouting department uh, you know, kind of how do you guys view the analytics department, especially your time with the Saints and the Browns? Like, what is the role of these analytics departments in the organizations right now? Like, what are they actually doing that impacts what happens on the field? You make me uh, think of that scene in Moneyball when Jonah Hill's character is first, like, getting introduced and there's all the yeah. old school scouts. There's definitely some of that. There's mm -hmm. definitely a bunch of that. And, in fact, there's there's a real – disdain for a lot of it because people that understand football really well and spend a lot of time understanding this stuff sometimes get uh, some poorly thought out opinions or some some shortcuts that aren't really understanding the whole thing and that can turn them off to stuff really quickly so um, some guys have already been turned off and some guys um, have been approached with it and with a different mindset and an open mind uh, what I can tell you in New Orleans is when I was there there wasn't a scouting department uh, an analytics department At, now there is at the time, um, you know, we had Mickey, who as a general manager was more in the, uh, the administrative track than being like a, a scouting track. So in a sense, he was building things, you know, with financial models and things of that sort, kind of thinking about things a little bit more progressively than maybe somebody that, that just looked at it from a scouting perspective 
might have looked at things. Um, he would say things to us like he didn't want guys that didn't meet minimum requirements. Um, we had minimum requirements that were established based on historical norms, heights, you know, speed per corners. Yeah, I'm, I'm big on I'm big on minimum requirements actually, and and the larger football community, specifically like the fantasy football community, has really gone away from minimum requirements. But I'm actually still pretty big on that in my player evaluation. Yeah, so like um, one thing Mickey didn't want was slow corners, and I think it's become even truer and truer with just how fast the game is right now. It's really hard to play with corners that are 4-6 and slower. It's really hard, and if you go around looking for the exception, then you're going to have a team full of exceptions. Right. And <laughs> there's, no, there's no team in the history of the NFL that ever won with a team full of, of exceptions. That would be Mickey's point there. Now, I'm a little bit more uh, probably open-minded. I think that, you know, always you want special traits that can compensate for being a little bit lesser in one area. That's how you see, you know, Marcus Colston couldn't run, but he was obviously a very good player for the Saints for years because he had other traits that were really good and that worked really well. Well, he was, he was hugely injury. productive. And I, something you mentioned was how the numbers available to scouts are, like, not great. And, uh, you know, you, you've, you mentioned to me before we recorded, you know, you don't know a ton about fantasy football. That's not your realm. And this website that I was involved in uh, founding kind of about six years ago – we use this metric uh, called market share, which basically, I mean, it, the idea was just that even at small schools, players who are getting 40%, 45%, 50% of um, their team's total passing production, both in yards and touchdowns, really had a great chance of being special players. And like in back testing that, it's interesting you mentioned like Marcus Colson was a guy who had like 52% of his college's receiving production his last year. Miles um, mm -hmm. Austin for the Cowboys was another one. Um, Pierre Garcon at, at Mount Union. These guys, they're, they're just so good that they transcended the competition. And I, I really, I guess I wonder is, is that idea at all prevalent inside of NFL teams or is that like, is that an, a completely non-discussed concept? I think 10 years ago, it was mostly non-discussed. And now it's become something that's more prevalent in a lot of, especially the smarter teams. Um, because you start to look at that sort of stuff, and that's not a fantasy-only thing that you're talking about there. It's not um, looking at college production and understanding college production along with combine measurables, you know, along with, with injuries and character, which also plays a, a role in, you know, that stuff on the, on the softer side of scouting. But all of that stuff is, is relevant, um, and what you're saying is absolutely true. And the really interesting one is, is the touchdown share. With receivers, yeah. when you look at touchdown share, it seems that um, in terms of identifying skill in receivers, it's natural to think, oh, who has the most yards per game? Who has the most catches per game? Who has the highest completion rate, yards per attempt? You know, the stats that we like and that we, that we kind of cling to and go to. But there are two things that, that that's not counting. One, who's the coach choosing to give the ball to? The coach sees these guys in practice every day. And now this will drive you crazy when you start to think about Alvin Kamara. Because Definitely. if you look at a share, a share type stat, Kamara, you're going to be thrown off the scent of Kamara every time. That might just be poor coaching um, is, is probably the way that you have to look at that. But um, usually the guys that play more play more for a reason because the coaches give them the ball. Um, the other thing that happens is with touchdowns specifically, touchdowns are very difficult. And the, the scarcity of touchdowns and the difficulty of creating touchdowns, it ends up showing up that in college level, the guys that get in the end zone, the ability to get in the end zone is more analogous to creating yards and points in the NFL than just getting yards. Getting yards in college is something that a lot of college players can do. Getting touchdowns is something 
that's more of a rare skill. Um, so I think those two things are really good things that'll tip you off as a scout because yeah. they're numbers, but numbers are indicators for things that we see with our eyes. So, you know, everybody likes to put them into two different worlds and I'm always trying to draw it together. Yeah. And I think, uh, along, you know, kind of along those lines, what is your sense of how the football people are viewing the analytics now? You know, your, your time, you're, you're at, you're at SIS now, but kind of what's your sense of how, you know, not only the prospect evaluation numbers, but like the stuff that you guys are doing at SIS, the stuff that uh, the next gen guys are doing, like how much are the football people, you know, the coaches, the scouts, how much are they embracing this new wave of football research? Man, it's diverse and it's a great question. And I I would say it like this. Obviously there's a range. There's your, your Moneyball scouts and there's your, you know, um, Cleveland Browns front office from a couple of years ago, you know, hyper progressive, whatever you want to say. Um, but I would say that the average person, the average smart guy working in the NFL right now um, in a personnel role or even probably, you know, younger coaches in the league, they're looking at it as they know best. They know they, they trust their eyes. They know football. They know what's going on. And they really don't care for hearing you tell them that you understand something better than they do. Yeah. And – they're mostly smart enough to realize that this isn't nonsense. Data is everywhere in the world and it helps people make decisions and they want to win. And you got to be an idiot to think that this, there's nothing here that could help you win. So that's why I say the average guy, you know, a little bit more the savvy guy, he's still trusting himself at the end of the day. He's not hearing any nonsense about running the ball, not mattering and, and bothering with that EPA discussion. But He's listening, and you could convince him. You know, down by 14, the Giants, they could go for two. Yeah. And those, those seep in because over time, people have these conversations. They're like, wait, wait a minute. What you're saying makes a lot of sense. If we're going to go for two on the last score of the game. We really should go on the second to last score of the game so that we could at least get it back if we don't get that two-point conversion, right? Like, and then you, you can say that to a player. They're not dumb. You know, this is a difficult job well, that they do. I mean, what I've heard, what I, I mean, I not sort of what I understand is that a lot of these analytics things, like going for it on fourth down, going for two, and and I, you know, I quit playing football when I was twelve, right? And I think that this is actually a big distinction: is a lot of the people who have this conversation actually either never played football or quit playing pretty young. But the players love that stuff. The players love going for two. Um, you know, the defense is energized by you going for it on fourth down because, you know, that's a little bit you saying, putting faith in them, like, hey, if we don't get it, I trust you guys. And it's putting faith in the offense saying, you know, when it's time for a yard. Like, it really seems to me in all these conversations, the people that are so against changing the way the game is played is the coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they're incentivized. I think a lot of people have discussed they're incentivized against being risk takers right. because of job security. But I think what you're saying is so true. When I was playing football, if we got to stop on third down to create fourth and one. And it's demoralizing for the defense to, to go, I did my job, but the job's not over. Oh, my like, God. I hate it when they would go for yeah, it on fourth and one. Yeah. They just have to get one yard, and then all that job we did on the last three downs stopping them means nothing, and they got a fresh set of downs. Sometimes I think the best way to think about strategic decision-making in football is to think about your opponent and what they would really prefer you not to do. You should probably do that. And, you know, it's how, you know, Belichick famously, when he was doing the game plan for uh, the Giants-Bills Super Bowl, begged 
begged the Bills to run the ball uh, because he knew that was the only way they could stay in the game with them because um, if it became a shootout, they weren't going to hang with that team. Um, it's, it's that ability to see ahead and to try to influence if, if the Bills knew that Belichick was just trying to get them to run the ball because he knew that they weren't as explosive running as they were passing, then they probably would have passed the ball anyway, right? They wouldn't have fallen into his trap like that. Right. And uh, this is kind of an example like that. For me, usually if you're on defense, you really don't want the offense to go for it on fourth and one. And yeah, so you'd, much, you'd much rather them punt it and get the ball back. Right. And, uh, and so, so for me, it, it's as a player – something that always resonated with me, something that always didn't make that much sense to me. Um, I love the concept, the guy who doesn't punt at all. Um, and his team. Yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the high school coach, he wrote the foreword to, uh, to a, a very popular football book this offseason, Warren Sharp's football preview and kind of talked about that theory. And it is, that's one of his things is it's just the other team hates it. They hate playing against it. Right. And, uh, and two things with that too. One, his players know it. They, they understand it going into the game. It's not complicated to them. So, you know, when uh, Booker McFarlane is yelling about, oh, my God, you're killing the momentum, you, you know, the, you don't understand the mentality of the player. If you talk to the players ahead of the game and you prepare them during the week, heck, yeah, let's, let's go for it. It's fourth down, you know, like um, that's, that's the fun part of football. And who likes punting? Um, so I, I love that stuff. I love onside kicks. Um, and I think that we haven't reached an equilibrium in terms of people need to be more aggressive and force people to keep reacting more until we get to a point where these aren't efficient decisions to make. Cause right. They are very efficient decisions to make the way it is, man. It's easy to call plays when you got four downs instead of three. Yeah, it's huge. And uh, you know, this is actually kind of under discussed, I guess, but the uh, like, there's a, a significant amount of game theory in football that I think it, it kind of gets lost in these analytics decisions because it becomes about, you know, what the math says, but, you know, there's like, uh, I, how much poker have you played? Do you, are you familiar with like kind of the concepts at all? Yeah. So I'm not like, a big poker player, but I, I got it. So like, uh, maybe not so much now. I, I don't know nearly as much about poker now as I did like five years ago, 10 years ago. But a big thing in poker like five years ago was just like, you should never call. Like if someone raises you, you should, you should either re-raise them, you know, go all in or fold. Like you should always be putting the other people to the decision. And I think there's a lot of merit in that with football as well. Like if you are putting your opponent in uncomfortable positions the entire game, uh, you're going to get them off of their script. You know, coaches, they want to have kind of a whole game script out. They have a bunch of uh, plays that they install. They have a, you, you know, these coaches have specific game plans for the week and for the opponent. And if you are consistently forcing them to bend to what your team is doing, I think there's a huge amount of value because practice time is so limited in the NFL already. You can put other teams in situations that they legitimately have not practiced for. And I think that is an under-discussed element of the, you know, the going for two and the going for it on fourth down and avoiding punting. Like we don't talk enough about how it makes the other team have to make suboptimal decisions because they don't have enough information. Right. If you practice going for two all the time and you practice it every week throughout the year and the other team only practices it the week ahead or maybe they got an extra practice in during their bye week because they saw you were coming down the road and they wanted to prepare for it ahead of time, man, you're just, you're just killing their practice schedule. You're, when when uh, the 2008 Dolphins started running that Wildcat stuff, 
that was the big advantage that they had was nobody had prepared for it and they got the opportunity to practice it and get better at it every week. So every, every week people are scrambling trying to figure out just what, you know, what's this going to look like the first time we see it, you know, like the first batter that comes up in a baseball game. Meanwhile, they know exactly what it's going to look like. They know exactly how the other teams have responded to it, how the adjustments have come. You mentioned game theory, and I'm fascinated by game theory and play calling. We would all agree. I, I uh, am too. I have a theory. I have a theory that uh, that like a robot would maybe be in a, a better play caller than even like Sean McVay. Just like through just through like analyzing, and it's not possible now because we don't have enough player tracking data. But I think like when all the helmets get microchipped and all of that stuff comes in, I have this theory that like AI play calling could be like incredible and could could present play calls and stuff that coaches would not dream of. Well, I, I think it's it's inevitable. If you were to talk to like Elon Musk about it, he would say that that's obviously inevitable. I mean, it doesn't even take really like deep AI, like the the kind of AI that we're trying to develop, where everybody's worried that aliens, robots, are going to take over the world, et cetera, et cetera. You don't even need that kind of stuff. This is really just like a a souped up version of chess. So I think if robots can beat humans in chess, which they can. I think it's almost inevitable that a, a robot would be able to outplay call a coach. Now, you drive people crazy by saying that because this is, this is a game played with humans, and, it's a, and that's, we're not there yet. We're not there in any discipline yet. I mean, we're, really. we're, like, we're like, I think, 20 years away from – like, even I think Sean McVay, who everyone pretty much regards as, like, he's so smart, he does everything properly – and, you know, he, he knows all the analytics and everything. I think he would still bristle at the idea that, like, there's just, like, a mathematical edge to be had that a, a person could never – I don't think a person could get themselves to always call the, the, the most optimal play. If they had it on their iPad, if, the, you know, the iPad comes up and it says, this is the play you should run, it's going to have a success rate of this, this, and this in this situation, I think any person in charge – would have hubris to change that play call several times a game. I don't think there's any way that a coach would call the most mathematically perfect game because they humans just can't do that. So the interesting question is, fast forward to 2040 or whatever it is, we have Sean McVay, grizzled veteran at this point. You know, He's the genius that we all thought he was, and he's, he's having a great career, and he's going to be competing against the football coach robot that's been optimized. Even if that were to happen in 20 years, I think that McVay's going into the game with his iPad thing, like you said, that is already spitting out what the most optimal, and it's just him choosing between the three most optimal plays versus right. the computer that's just spitting out the most, you know. Um, and then, so, yeah, I, I mean, we're not, we're not there right now, and I'm not, I'm not advocating for uh, this sort oh, of... I'm, ki- I'm kind of advocating <laughs> for it. I know pe- people really don't like this conversation because it takes a lot of the romance out of the game. It, it, you know, it just becomes like a big game of Counter-Strike or whatever, like where it's, it's literally just trying to move the chess pieces around in the most optimal way to abuse, you know, whatever. Like, and a lot of it right now is the rules. Coaches who are figuring out how to abuse the rules are like at a huge advantage. Right. I mean, you can also look at it. um, There's like the strategic element with all of this. There's um, there are players on the field and these individual battles that are still going to occur. So even if you do have the optimal move, there's going to be this element of risk, this element of why you play the game that still exists because you know, if I move my, my pawn from A2 to A4, there's, not, there's no gray area there. That's the move. That's the only thing that could happen there. But in football, if I have um, 
who, what was the matchup last night that was, oh, Jawan James against J.J. Watt. I can think that J.J. Watt's going to kill Jawan James every time, and most of the time he probably will. But there's more than half the plays in the game that Jawan James didn't get abused. Right, didn't, by get, J. J. didn't get blown by. by. Yeah. Right? So, so at, on some level, there's, there's the probabilities and the percentages that go in there, and, like, and you could simulate it as well as you could play it. But even, you know, you still will have that element of why you play the game. You know, even if you optimize everything perfectly, there's far from a guarantee that the better play caller wins the game. Yeah, there's enough noise and variance in the game of football that, uh, you know, it's not, all, it's, it's not a game of chess because chess has, you know, X number of outcomes, whereas, like, I think the, the total number of outcomes on any given play is so wide that, I, I mean, there is always going to be a human element to this specific game. Like, it's not – anytime you, you take something away from one-on-one interactions and you make it 22 interactions on any given play, like, there's just such a wide range of things that can happen. So maybe maybe the computer can't call the right plays because it, you know, it doesn't see what, you know, the defender banged up his hip on one play. And maybe that's, like, an example of something that coaches are really good at as they can observe and they can say, this cornerback is tired. We need to call a go route for Will Fuller here because the cornerback who's on him is winded and we have a chance. And, like, maybe the, maybe the computer is not able to properly optimize for that decision-making. In the future, maybe. Right now, certainly not. Yeah, we right. got to get that. We got chips in the helmet. And, and uh, so this is happening in European soccer right now is and in basketball everything about the players is being tracked heart rate uh how fast they're moving how many miles they're running and like we don't have any of that for the nfl yet and that is that's like the that's the new wave that's the machine learning wave that can like honestly change everything up but we're just we're just not there yet because we don't have enough data yeah, um, it's interesting because they have a lot of that stuff in practice, but not actually in the games. A lot well, of the time. Yeah, it's, well, and I, I believe it's true in the NBA that they are allowed to do the heart rate monitoring and the effort monitoring and stuff in practice, but it's still not allowed in the games as well. Right. They, they CBA, they negotiate that in the CBA, right? Yeah. So, uh, so I think a, a good example here, and this is actually this. The fantasy listeners will be pretty interested in this. How this happens inside of the building. So say, for example, we have a coaching staff who's just like clearly using a less talented and less efficient player when there are better in-house options that exist. I, I think a great example would be Detroit right now with LeGarrette Blunt when they have on Johnson there. Um, you know, we just saw Mike McCoy basically get fired because he couldn't get David Johnson moving and into space. How organizationally, or even from like the scouting department, how would it be communicated like, look, you just, you need to run on Johnson more often instead of LeGarrette Blunt, or David Johnson is being used in a really non-optimal way. You need to use him this way. How do you think that conversation would go? Or have you ever been privy to those conversations inside of the scouting department to the coaching staff? Coaches don't like those comments. <laughs> they really don't. And that's my sense is that it's, it, it's a very hard conversation to have with the coach. They, coach. they want to coach. They're most, you know, aside from the GM, all the coaches make more money than everybody in the scouting department. They want to coach. That's what they're paid to do. That's their job. And they prefer you to not tell them how to use their players. Do the shopping and let me do the cooking. Um, it's sort of... Well, kind of vice versa. How much input does the coaching staff have on like, look, I need, uh, I need Marcus Wheaton to make this team effective. Or like Matt Nagy was like, look, I need, some, I need Taylor Gabriel... Like, Taylor Gabriel got crazy money. Like, no one expected him to be paid that much. And the Bears paid him, I think it's like $15 million guaranteed or something because Matt Nagy knew he needed a player like that 
in his offense. So how much input does the coaching staff have on, on drafting and free agency and stuff like that? So I would say that in my experience, there's more input in that direction. Now, the, the Browns famously after I left had some issues where the, the GM was trying to get in the coach's ears and, and texting him on the sideline or something like that. Um, and, and that kind of nonsense. And I do think there's a place like we see in baseball where the managers don't even do anything anymore. The decisions are made by the analytics people and they're just communicators of that information. Um, I do think that if you're a wise coach, you would like to hear your, these, this intelligent stuff. Um, when we were in new Orleans, Brian Pace was our director of pro scouting, now the GM of the Bears. And Sean Payton trusted, trusted Ryan Pace. That's a big part of the reason why Ryan has his current job. Sean Payton trusted him because he came with good information to the coaches. He came with good, whether it was analytic information or scouting information, obviously with Ryan more scout than analytics, but um, he came with good information. He developed trust. And when you develop that trust, the coaches might have more of an open mind. At the end of the day, it's going to come down to them. Now, the other thing going on, like you were asking in the other direction, Mickey Loomis and Sean Payton, they have an unbelievable relationship. If there's one thing that makes that organization, it's, it's the two things that I would say. The relationship between Sean Payton and Mickey Loomis and the relationship between Sean Payton and Drew Brees. Those two things are just really, really special. Uh, a lot of people don't realize Sean used to be a quarterback. He was a quarterback in college. He was actually the NCAA all-time leader in passing when he graduated from Eastern Illinois ahead of Tony Romo and Jimmy Garoppolo. I had, um, I had no idea he went to uh, – he, he was at Eastern Illinois. I knew he was a quarterback, but I didn't know that. Yeah, and he also played you know, a part of the role in discovering Tony Romo in Dallas, really. Um, and that's part of that connection there. Um, so, yeah, he was a player's own right. He was undersized, and it makes a lot of sense to me that he sees the game very similarly to Drew, and they've, had, they've been able to have such a connection. They really see the exact same things. They see great overlap from one another. Um, where what one misses, the other one will see, and there's, there's ultimate trust. Um, that's one thing, obviously, but getting back to the GM and the head coach, there is so much trust that these guys have in one another. I think Mickey would prefer that Sean had all the final decision-making say at the end of the day because he is going to call the plays on the game, and at the end of the day, Mickey's trying to get Sean the players that he needs, um, and that's, that's the way that it should work, and that's, that's the right thing that's going on there. At the same time, Sean was very trusting. He has his full job on his hands running a coaching staff, um, dealing you know, with the 53 guys on the team. He really didn't want to concern himself with also running a scouting department or an analytics department. And for that reason, he always tried to put in a lot of trust towards Mickey and put in a lot of trust towards Mickey's guys, like Ryan and like the different college scouts that we had in, in the building there. Um, now, it's always funny to me because – the, uh, the coaches would have different um, amounts that they would give you as a scout. And as a scout, you really want to understand what the coaches are looking for as well as what's playing in the league because both of these things are important. So, for example, when I was on the road, when we had um, Rob Ryan as our defensive coordinator, he was much, much more specific than Greg Williams was in terms of what he was looking for. That said, he was also much more open to hearing what the scouts had to say about right. the different players. Yeah. So, so Greg would say, I don't care. Just get me good players. But then when it would come to the draft time and it would get into draft season, 
Greg Williams and his staff, they would have strong opinions on the players. So they might not tell you we want a corner with long arms or we want a corner that's, that's going to be, you know, really good in the slot and have a lot of athleticism in there. They might just say, you know, we want good players. But then you'd come to the meetings and you'd have a lot of good players and you'd realize about halfway going down through the list that they, they actually didn't have any interest in guys that are only fits in a man scheme and not a fit in his own scheme, for example, whatever else it was. Now, and, you know, you learn that stuff over time and you watch your own team to understand what's playing on your team and what, what fits on your defense. Now, I, I appreciated Rob Ryan's approach because he came and he had a, a rather hilarious meeting when he first uh, got hired. But um, what he said to us was, this is what I'm looking for in each position. I like to play 3-4. I like to be able to two-gap up front. So it's important to me to have really good length on my, my five big guys on my team. You know, the three up front guys and the two outside linebackers. Length, long arms, height was very... And is, like, is that very helpful as a scout to be like, okay, these are the sorts of players I need to be looking for? Like, I need to be looking for this set of tools. Like, does that help you narrow your searching down or does it more restrictive is it is it harder to exist with those parameters well I appreciated the way Rob did it because he gave us those as a guideline he would say this is what's really important to me that said I've seen guys that are six feet tall I've seen Dwight Freeney Dwight Freeney doesn't meet any of these requirements for any of the positions that I put on this piece of paper but I want Dwight Freeney (laughs) right so it was helpful in the sense that he said this is the skills that I'm looking for. My defense requires more length, and if we don't have that, then we're going to have to do more things that we're not accustomed to doing. That said, I don't want to handcuff you to the point where you're recommending a lesser player over a better player because who's that going to help at the end of the way? Then we're going to have a, a, a bunch of guys that check the boxes and stink at football. Um, and to be perfectly honest, that's what happened in Cleveland when we drafted Justin Gilbert. The scouting department, I mean, not – we had Khalil Mack and Aaron Donald ahead of both of these guys, but um, there was some need for a corner and need-based drafting will always get you into trouble. Sure. And yeah. we made the first pick, the worst pick that we made in the first round of the Johnny Manziel draft. We took Justin Gilbert over Jason Barrett. And like, you know, like I mentioned, Aaron Donald. Um, Based off of these parameters that Greg Ryan had set and out. That was the problem is the scouting department came back and we said, we think Barrett's the best corner. But we think that Justin Gilbert, you know, he's 6'1". He's got some, some things to him that, you know, fit well in that kind of cover three scheme that's in vogue around the league right now. Um, and the coaches came and they watched the film and they fell in love with Gilbert. And the coaches wanted Gilbert ahead of Arrett. And part of the problem with, I think, the process that we had in that Cleveland front office was the scouts' job is to scout players all year. You should trust your scouting department. You're paying them for a reason. Yeah, the coaches, their opinions should matter, but it shouldn't just they shouldn't just come in while you've been working the whole year on evaluating these players and really for four or five years evaluating all these guys, getting to know every player that comes in through your region. This is you know this is a big boy job, and to just come in after watching two weeks of film and seeing somebody run in shorts at the combine and decide what you think is the right or wrong decision. I mean, these are the same guys that complain that you know too much stock is put in the combine, but then here you know in the same breath they'll. They take their opinions and they say, we want Justin Gilbert because he's, he's 6'1 and he's got long arms and we think that's, that's what's going to win in our defense. That's how you end up with really bad draft picks. So, so let's, let's, just put you, let's just put you in the shoes of uh, being a general manager. Let's say, let's say Cleveland calls you up and they say, look, man, Dorsey, he's just not getting it done. We want you to be the GM. How would you 
kind of amalgamate all of that information and the decision-making process? How much would the coaches get to have a say? What would the scouts' roles be, both the area scouts and the analytics department? Kind of how would you structure the decision-making process for the draft and free agency? Like what amount of input from each department and who would get kind of the final say? So um, the way we, the way that uh, Mike Lombardi had it structured, the way that um, historically a lot of teams structure it, I think is really sound. I mean, um, take the draft. You have your college scouting season, so you want to have all your scouts in, you know, in training camp, get them on the same page about what you're looking for, what's playing in the NFL right now, what your team's strengths and weaknesses are, get to know your own team. And then from August through November, you're on the road and you're evaluating. And this is when you're, you're meat and potatoes of everything is happening. You're watching the film. You're getting to know the coaches. This is when you should make, you know, your, most of your overall evaluations. And for each, at that time, you'll have everybody viewed by at least two people. So you're going to have it viewed by your area scout, and then you're going to have all of your top 300, 400, whatever it is, yeah. also viewed by a cross-check scout, an, an over-the-top scout, right? Somebody, somebody on the higher level in, in the department. So then you get to December, you can have your first round of meetings where you start to talk about all this. At this point, I think everything should be in a scouting department um, kind of silo. Um, and you create your big board, you know, across for the positions, um, horizontally, the positions across the board, up and down vertically, kind of where you have people graded out. Um, and then I've seen things done both ways. I was lucky enough to kind of learn the old school approach that Mickey and Ryan Pace taught me in New Orleans, which is very much like round-based grading, kind of the yeah. old school, this is a third rounder um, approach, kind of holistic. And then I also learned, you know, the quote-unquote Patriots way that Lombardi had developed with Belichick and that we used in, um, in Cleveland, which is, um, it's, it's grading based on how somebody's going to fit on your team. So there's only one grade for a third down running back, right? And there's a different grade for if you're only a first and second down running back. And then there's grades for a three down running back. And there's grades for backup level. And are those, are those grades like pass fail grades? Like this guy fits, this guy doesn't fit? In the grade, the, the grid ends up looking exactly the same as your round based grades, but it's preset. So instead of the top left set being your first round quarterbacks and then right below that, your second round quarterbacks in this your top level is your quarterbacks who are elite prospects, pro bowlers down the road, first-year starters. Then your second rung below that is guys that can become a starter by the beginning of their second season, a high-quality starter. Then your rung below that is what we would call a win-with starter, a guy you don't win because of, but you can win with. Um, and then you get to your you know, ideal backup level and all that kind of stuff. And all of those correspond to rounds. Of course, you know, you're not, eventually a round gets placed on it. Yeah. But while you're going around the whole year and while you're looking and placing players into these boxes, what it allows you to say is not be, be nitpicking between two running backs that you think are both going to be starting level players throughout the year. You just throw them into that same, into that same grade level and then you stack them within the grade levels. Um, and then you can work with your board and kind of consolidate things horizontally so that, you know, you can stack your quarterbacks against your running backs, against your receivers, linemen, et cetera. Um, but this, this, kind of, um, this kind of approach was meant to provide a little bit more rigor because you might look at a guy and say second round, and I might look at a guy and say fourth round, and that's kind of the end of the discussion. But if we look at the guy and you say, I think this guy is going to be an every down uh, three technique for us, he can play on first and second down against the base package, he can play on third down and provide a real pass rush help for us, um, this is how he fits into our team. 
And I can say I either agree with that vision or I say, you know, I see, I, I, I agree with you about first and second down, but for me, I don't think this guy's a third down. Uh, he's not adding to our pass rush. He's not upgrading over the guy that we currently got playing there. So that's why you have your grade on him, and that's why I have my grade on him. And at, we, at least we can see there what the difference in how we see these players is. And we can be in agreement at the beginning of the season of if we find somebody that's that three-down player, then, yes, he's worthy of that 6-7 that grade, that 6-8 grade, which is, which is really, you know, kind of the second-round range is where it ends up being on that scale. Yeah, wow. That's, uh, that's a lot. I, I think the people will be, will be pretty fascinated uh, by that. So before we go over to, uh, to the bonus part uh, of the podcast, and there will be probably a 10, 15-minute bonus conversation on the Patreon here with Matt, uh, I wanted to cover what his actual role is now, his actual job. We've, we've talked so much about being a, a scout and inside of organizations, but you are actually the director of football development at Sports Info Solutions. So uh, kind of the last thing here before we go over to uh, the Patreon is what is some of the most revelatory and important work that has happened while you've been the director of football development at SIS? You know, what is the, the biggest things you've learned about this game that we all love so much? So, you know, um, maybe a little bit the, the cop-out. I'll start with the cop-out answer and then I'll give you a little bit of good stuff. But for me... The, kind, the whole thing that we're doing is really what's the most important thing about it for me. Baseball Info Solutions was started in 2002. John Dewan and Bill James came together, and um, they had done a lot of great work with Stats Inc. and the historical baseball analytics stuff, and they wanted to build a deeper data set of the most accurate, timely, um, and helpful, really actionable information for teams, and then also to educate everybody about the game. And they've had an incredible level of success. They work with 25 of the 30 major league teams. Um, and everybody knows Bill James and, and Moneyball and all that kind of stuff. And that, that's all great. In 2015, they got into football. And they have all this great data collection, um, this proprietary technology that they use to do all of this collection, the IT department that creates these programs and does this great uh, data validation and auditing and, and, and you know, all things that I can't even understand. And then our R&D staff, which is, you know, the real geniuses, I think, um, the people that are working every day in R and in SQL and grinding through the code and, and trying to make um, new advancements and new ways to look at the game. So we had this whole infrastructure. They just didn't really know football that well. And I came in over, I was getting my graduate degree over at Columbia University after I had left the Browns. And learning analytics and learning about analytics in other sports because they don't even have any analytics in football really to teach me at the time. And I got connected from that program over to this company I, when I, they found that they were looking for a football, some, somebody to kind of tie in all of this math stuff with football and really bring it to the field and to the teams like they had with baseball. And they saw me coming out of there with this, you know, this growing background in analytics, but with this real background with the teams and understanding the game. Um, and the X's and O's and the nitty gritty. Um, so they brought me in and it ended up being a really great match. And what we've been able to do over the last two, three years is build this up to a place where we're tracking every NFL game, every FBS college football game with the same level of data. So yes, next gen is coming for NFL and we're doing some interesting stuff with that next gen and working with teams on integrating that stuff with our data um, and making that um, the best it can be. But where a lot of the values going forward is going to be is on the college side. Yeah, because the, there is the data no, there for the college, like, it's like there's like nothing. 
Right. And, um, and so with this kind of infrastructure that we built, where we have four scouts watch every game, NFL or college, same thing, we're recording all the same data points and um, recording everything in as granular detail as possible. And we're the only operation that is doing this, number one, all under one roof. Number two, all trained based on the NFL uh, techniques that I've learned and the evaluation, what, what teams are looking for, where I've learned from both of these schools of thought that I've talked about. And on top of that, um, we're not grading any players. It's very important to us that in the way that, that Bill James conceptualized things with baseball, they didn't grade anybody. They didn't grade your swing. They didn't grade your catch. The, the key thing was identifying every event that happens on the field and being able to objectively identify things as much as possible. So we might we not be able to say, um, oh, plus one, because that, that uh, first baseman made a scoop, or plus 1.5 or minus one because it was a pass ball. But we will say that was a pass ball, or we will say that first baseman made a scoop. Um, or, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the examples go on and on. In football, we try to do the exact same thing. We try to record all these objective events in as granular detail as possible. And what this is doing between that and our in-house operation, all the data validation and auditing that we do, and just having the scouts next to each other so that they can all agree about what Tampa 2 is versus what Cover 2 is, and we can all be on the same page on all of our definitions. All of that stuff is creating a data set that's going to allow everybody to understand football in a much deeper level, um, on both the NFL level and on the college football level. And it's going to be um, foundational for years to come if it's been anything like it's been on the baseball side. So I'm really most excited about um, coming in to a bunch of guys that frankly didn't know much about football and um, being able to work with them on creating some of the stuff because from our collection operation to the sorts of analytics that we're doing right now with, uh, with things like total points and IQR and, and the different statistics that we're coming up with now, um, and some of the great people that we're working with. You mentioned Warren Sharp before. Warren Sharp works with Sports Info Solutions data. And it's exciting when we see him and we see other people out there that are working with our data, not just in the private sphere for the teams, but also in the public sphere um, and pushing the whole conversation forward. It's exciting that we've been able to partner with Aaron Schatz as one of our founding partners. We are the official college football data providers for ESPN now. So you'll notice over the next couple of years, the ESPN, the way they cover the game is going to be getting deeper and deeper. And it should be more fun as a fan. So all this stuff makes me really, really excited. Now, my non-cop-out answer. Teams should pass more than they're currently passing. You mentioned EPA before. And in terms of EPA, um, it's clear that passing is more efficient than running. Passing, and EPA does take into account turnovers and things like that, um, where you know, there can be some criticism of different metrics, like yards per attempt certainly doesn't take into account turnovers. Yeah. But, but EPA does. Um, so... We talked about game theory, and until the EPA kind of reaches more of an equilibrium, I think we're going to continue to see that people like you and me are going to be clamoring to pass more. Um, now, there are limitations to that that I think are, are a whole different story for another time. Like, um, we're doing a thing right now called Boomer Bust, where we're adding a stat to EPA called Boomer Bust, because the average running play has a boomer bust result only about 18% of the time, whereas the average passing play has it 35 to 40% of the time. Boomer bust being defined as more than one EPA added or more than one EPA lost on the play. 
So yeah. what that does is it helps you see that, no, sacks and interceptions do happen more. These negative plays do happen more on passes than on runs. So coaches aren't totally out of their mind to choose something that's less riskier, even if it has less of an expected payoff at the end. We see this in the stock market every day, right? You can get something very risky with a very high return. You can get something less risky with a lower return. Now, I still think teams should be passing more, but there's some more context there. Other things teams should be doing more. Play action. You should probably be running play action almost every time you drop back to pass. Yeah. Jet motion. Jet motion is looking like it's one of the best kinds of play action. Um, you, kind of, you get an extra player in the backfield, so you lose a vertical threat on the line of scrimmage. But, man, it stretches the defense. And what we're seeing is that on run plays, jet motion doesn't make a big difference. Surprising. I know that was a big, big surprise for my high school coach to find out. But on passing plays, the jet motion is abusing defenses. It's causing all kinds of players to get out of position and stretched out wide. And when we see that paired with the, the rise of the slot positioning, not necessarily inside and outside receiver, but what a football coach would call a nasty split, where you kind of got a less than six-yard split between the tight end or the offensive tackle and the receiver. So not necessarily the slot per se with somebody outside of you. The combination of the way that this is changing the angles on the football field, it's got to be utilized more. Other things, shotgun. Shotgun plays are more efficient on average than non-shotgun plays. Um, that's something that's really interesting to find there. And finally, um, we're seeing, again, boom bust. We see that man is more boom bust than zone. Zone is a little bit safer than man. But we see that on average, NFL teams are really, really struggling in zone these days. We've seen quarterback rating go up across the league. This year, quarterback rating against zone. Total crossing that makes that makes intuitive sense to me, given given the rule changes and given how you, you it's just much harder to be physical. It makes total sense right. to me. It's tough, and and teams are exploiting it, and teams are really exploiting it. So these are the things that we're looking at the Rams doing. We're looking at the Chiefs doing. If I can kind of distill the things that they're doing just more often than other teams are, <laughs> that's helping their offense be better. Um, yeah, play action, jet motion, shotgun, and pass the ball. Beautiful. All right. Uh, that was an amazing discussion. Probably the most interesting episode of the show so far through about 45 episodes. If you guys enjoyed that discussion, uh, one, before we go over to the paywall, tell them about the podcast that you do with Aaron Schatz. Yes, um, absolutely. Check out the Off the Charts Football Podcast. You can get it wherever you get podcasts. It is myself and football outsiders pioneer Aaron Schatz. We discuss all the action around the NFL every week. We break down some of the most important games for playoff odds that are coming up. We look at some of the most interesting topics around the league. This week we talked about two-point conversions, down by, down by eight, going for two, and we talked about tanking in the NFL. So please check that out. Um, and you can also follow us on Twitter at SportsInfo, S-I-S. I'm personally at Matt Mano. Um, and there's lots of great SportsInfo solutions content out there between the SIS Data Hub you can get a free account at sisdatahub.com. The Football Outsiders premium charting data and fantasy football projections. Um, so you can kind of find us all over the place. Bill Con Connolly is doing a lot of our great uh, college work, and he's using our stuff. Orange Sharp, as I mentioned before. So um, support all the guys that are supporting us because um, we just want to keep getting this out there and keep moving the game forward.